0: are going to be in Second Chronicles 33 today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you now for the amazing privilege that we have of looking into your Word and reading and seeking to understand, but even more, Lord, seeking to see what you want us to know that we can obey. And so as we study this passage today, and as gruesome as it is in some ways, help us also to see that you are a God full of grace and mercy. We ask this in your name. Amen. Please be seated. There are all kinds of promises, different kinds of promises. Uh, In the Bible, there's several. Um, There is the conditional promise, which is, if you do this, and there's a condition laid out, then I will do this. For instance, so I will give you half of your inheritance when you turn 18 and graduate from high school. So you may say, okay, well, that's the condition. Um, I'm sorry. <clears throat> yeah, I got these backward. <laughs> Unconditional is what I started with, and that's that when you turn 18, which is nothing you can do about that, you will turn 18, I will give you your inheritance. Now, the conditional promises are more of what we find in the scriptures. If you do this, then I will do this. So if you finish your degree, then I'll give you your inheritance. That's one way of looking at it. And that's a conditional promise. We call them if-then promises. If, if you do this, then God will do this. And, and it's spelled out. Moses spelled it out in Second Chronicles 7, uh, a, a verse many of us know and quote. But He's speaking to the people of Israel and warning them. And he, he says, here's, here's the prayer. The Lord wanted the people of Israel to know this. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and, and, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. So the if is, if you call on my name, humble yourselves, pray and seek my face, turn from your wicked ways. If you do that, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. One of the biggest if-then promises you're going to find in the Scriptures. Uh, and, and, and Moses was laying that out for the people. They're getting ready to go into the promised land, and, and Moses knew, you know, they still have all kinds of issues and problems and difficulties, and sin is always just lurking, and they seem to want to jump into that. And so... Again, this this really powerful verse, and it comes just after they dedicated the Temple of Solomon. Um, I'm sorry, it was Chronicles, not Deuteronomy. So after they dedicated the Temple of Solomon, God gives him this promise so that he knows people are going to drift away or walk away, that if they would turn back, this is what could happen for them. Now, Deuteronomy 18, uh, Moses was encouraging and challenging the people before they enter the promised land. And he said, When you enter the land, the Lord your God is giving to you. Do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his sons or daughters in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells or who is a medium or a spiritist or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. That's strong, strong words. But look at what he's talking about. These were the common practices of the people of Canaan. Common practices of people who worship Baal and Asherah. And so this is something that God's saying, you're going into this country. I'm displacing all of these people to give you this land I promised. Don't do what they did. Don't do the things that they did. Stay away from all those things. There's a chart of the kings and empires I want to just kind of put up there real quick. I'm going to play with my new laser pointer. <laughs> Just really quickly, Hezekiah and Ahaz, um, they jointly reigned for about 10 years. Hezekiah and Manasseh, the same thing. There was about a 10-year period. So when it says Manasseh took the throne at age 12, well, that's when he started to reign with his father. At 22, his father died, and, and he went on from there. Now, the 12, 10 tribes from the north are gone. They are dispersed all over the, the then-known world, and so none of them come back. Babylonians have not conquered Assyria yet. We're still in that time period when Assyria is in charge, and actually Assyria is still subjugating Babylon itself. So that's kind of where we're at. We'll be heading to Josiah next week, and and, uh, then that'll be uh, the wrap-up of our study in the kings. So that's kind of what's going on with all that. Now, in those 15 years that Hezekiah was given after, after, the 185,000 Assyrians were killed. Remember that? He prayed to the Lord. He laid out the letter before the Lord, and he and Isaiah were praying. And the Lord said, I got this. Sent one angel. 185,000 Assyrians died in one night. And, you know, King Sennacherib went back home. He had no army anymore. And in that 15 years... That all that's, before the 15 years that he was given at the end of his life additionally, that's when all of that happened. So it's possible that Manasseh was not alive when all that happened. Uh, it's possible that he was a a young child, but I gotta believe that he heard the stories. I mean, this was incredible. And they prayed to God and God killed a whole army in one night. And nobody had to do anything except trust God to do what he was gonna do. And so Hezekiah had raised Manasseh in all of this. He had been king with his son for a period of time. And during that time, I'm sure he was telling him now, you know, this is what you need to do as you obey the Lord. I'm sure he went with him to the temple and showed him different things that he needed to do as he was praying and laying out the future that he wanted his son Manasseh to have with the people of Israel. So he had a king who was called a good king like David, only two of them in all of the scriptures besides David. And, and that was his father. Okay. So you would think, all right. So he learned the good stuff. This is going to be all right. And then you immediately see that it's not going to be all right. Manasseh, verse chapter one. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem for 55 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before Israel. Remember, we just read that passage in Deuteronomy. Don't do these things. Don't be like these nations. I'm kicking them out of the land and giving it to you so that you you will have a land where that's not going on. And and here he is following those practices. Verse 3, He rebuilt the high places, his father Hezekiah, had demolished. He also erected altars to the bales and made a shear poles, and he bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshiped them. How does this happen? This is Hezekiah's son. He knew, he knew what God's Word says. And in Second Kings it tells us, he erected these altars and bales as Ahab had done. Now, if you remember, David is the king that everybody's compared to when it comes to being a good king or not. Ahab was the worst there was. And if you were like Ahab, then you were horrible. And he says he was like Ahab. He built altars in the temple of the Lord. So in that temple, let's go ahead and put that picture up there. Um, And in both courtyards of the temple... In the time, this is Solomon's temple, and it's an artist depiction, but there was, you see that there's a raised section here, it was probably bigger, but the people were, would be out here in this outer courtyard, and the upper courtyard is where the priests would be doing the things that they were supposed to do, and he erected gods in these areas, and on these areas as well. Anywhere he could have put a, some kind of a, an, an idol, he, he did it, he put it up. And then the worst comes in verse 6. He sacrificed his sons. Your translation may say son, but the Septuagint definitely says it's plural. Sacrificed his sons in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnon, practiced sorcery, divination, witchcraft, consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Imagine he did much evil. He didn't just slip up, I mean he worked at it really hard. He really wanted to do all of these things, and he pursued evil and the idols and the gods of the Canaanites full speed ahead. He did not slow down. So he puts bales and shear poles in the courtyards. Look at verse seven. It says he took the carved image he had made and put it in God's temple. So you've got idols all over the courtyard, all over Jerusalem, everywhere. Well, now he's made an idol and he's taken it inside the actual temple itself. Remember King Uzziah went in there and he was just going to offer some incense and that's when he got leprosy. He God said, don't, don't mess around with my what my priests are supposed to do. Well, Manasseh just went in there and... Put this idol up. Verse 9 says, Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. Okay, so God said to them, I'm going into the promised land now. Don't mix with the people. Don't intermarry with them. matter of fact, I want you to drive them out so they won't be a temptation to you. I'm driving them away and taking them out because I... Don't want that kind of thing in the land I'm giving you. Do not associate, do not be a part of what they're doing. And here Manasseh grabs onto it for all he's got. So in the temple that David had provided for and Solomon had built in Jerusalem, um, God said, hey, that's where I chose to put my name. And then he says in verse 8, I will not again make the feet of the Israelites Leave the land I assigned to your fathers if... And here's the condition. He says, I won't won't send you into exile. I won't cause serious problems for you if only they will be careful to do everything I command concerning the laws, decrees, and ordinances given through Moses. But Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray so that they did more evil than all the nations before them. And that's repeated for us again. So Manasseh led them into evil. He said, come on, let's go. And they, they joined in and went with him. If Jewish historians are correct, and, and many people think that they are, part of this time that uh, <clears throat> Manasseh was doing the things he was doing, he had a regular time of the day when he just executed people. And he started with prophets and people who were followers of God. Uh, they believe, uh, Jewish historians believe that he's the one that actually killed Isaiah by cutting him in half, um, sawed through a log that he, had, he was in. And so this, this is Manasseh. Manasseh's evil in every way. Um, the Lord spoke, sent prophets. They didn't listen. Manasseh didn't listen. They didn't listen. Um, Isaiah and Micah for sure were prophesying, and there were others as well that were unnamed. God's answer to the evil of Manasseh and the people of Judah is in 2 Kings 21-13. He says, I will judge Jerusalem by the same standard I used for Samaria. Do you remember what happened to Samaria? That's where Ahab was, and that's where they were, you know basically Baal worshippers or golden calf worshippers for the whole time that kingdom existed. Elijah was there. Elisha was there. Challenging, confronting. And finally it was over. God judged them, brought the Assyrians. They took everybody captive. They removed them all from the, from the land, scattered them all over. They never came back. The ten tribes were never heard from again. God's answer, 2113, is, I will judge Jerusalem in the same, by the same standard I used for Samaria. You guys are doing the same things they did, folks. I'm going to judge you by the same standard and the same measure I used for the family of Ahab. Look at this imagery he uses. I will wipe away the people of Jerusalem as one wipes a dish and turns it upside down. You're drying the dishes at the end of the day, you dry it and you tip it upside down, that's what he's going to do to Jerusalem and the people of Israel. That's God's judgment. He's, he's saying this is what's going to happen. Verse 11, So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. Let's go and put that, that picture up there. Um... This has got lots of information historically about the Assyrians doing this kind of thing. In this case, there was a ring through the cheek, but most of the time it was a hook or something through the nose. And you see those people lined up along the bottom. They are, they have a chain between their necks, but they also have that thing from their nose down to the chain. They have shackles. And he says, Manasseh, you're going into captivity. Interesting. It does not appear that there was any kind of war or battle or siege. The Lord brought the Assyrians, they grabbed Manasseh, and they left, taking him back to where they were going. In this case, they were actually going to um, back to Babylon. It is thought that perhaps part of what happened in this scenario is that the Babylonians were trying to break free from Assyria, the Egyptians were trying to break free, and Manasseh kind of joined that party, and it may be that this was just part of, the, part of that, but in this case it was God's prophecy, God saying, this is what's going to happen, you're gone. I'm sending you to Babylon. What's the implication here? I think verse 10 really struck me. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Can you imagine that? I mean, Isaiah was a was a, an elder statesman at this point. He was a he was a man who'd been in, in Jerusalem for years, prophesied to a number of kings. I didn't want to hear from Isaiah. And you know, I'm sure Manasseh heard the stories of Hezekiah's victory over Assyria and he, how he accompanied his father to the temple and so he knew the rituals, he knew about the sacrifices, he understood because he had been taught those things from the time he was a little boy. And from age 12, as, as being a co-ruler with his father, he was involved in everything his father did. And all that included also worshiping God. But when his father died, instead of seeking to follow God, I mean, he turned and went the opposite way as fast and as hard as he could. He pursued evil in every way he could think of. And if there was an idol out there, he was bound and determined to be someone who worshipped that idol. And he led, verse 9, Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray so that they did more evil than the nations before now, I just kind of I came across this as I was studying. When Manasseh turned away from God, turned his back on God, there are three things he specifically was turning away from. He turned away from a God who offers atonement and the forgiveness of sins and all that through the sacrificial system. And he turned to goddess worship and the immorality of some of those practices and, and anything else that he could do. He turned away from... True forgiveness and atonement that God could give. He turned away from a God who is present, always with you, not a local deity. He's present everywhere, and that's seen in the bread of the presence. And, and uh, you know, a God who was with you, a God who provided atonement, and then a God who hears, and that was seen through the altar of the incense. It was the prayers of God's people ascending in heaven. And what did he do instead? Well, he's gonna do sorcery and divination and witchcraft and, and whatever he can do to, to find out what's going on. He wasn't the least bit interested in what God could or couldn't do. Manasseh saw what a godly king looked like. Hezekiah was a king like David, who did good. He turned totally away from it. And and, and we sit back, I sit back and I why? Why did he do this? How could he do this? He purposely turned his back on anything good and pursued wickedness and evil in incredible ways. 2 Kings 21 says, Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood, innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end. He was pursuing evil and mocking God at every turn. It it was almost as if he was saying, if you're God, stop me. I bet you can't. And God allowed him to continue for a time. It's interesting because at some point, God finally said enough, and he brings the Assyrians and they take him captive. Galatians 6, 7 and 9, 7 through 9 says, Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God, or you cannot make a fool out of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. You reap what you sow, and uh, certainly Manasseh was doing that. I worked for a number of years in Detroit with um, a group of guys. They were they all they were all either alcoholics or or drug users. and we had this Bible study. It was just kind of a really... It was a special time. I enjoyed meeting with these guys and encouraging and challenging them. And um, one of the guys' names was Stephen. And, and um, at, some, at one point, one of the guys didn't come to one of our studies. We met once a week and we had supper and then we'd study together. And he didn't come. And so we reached out to him, tried to call him, that kind of thing. He said, oh, yeah, yeah I'm fine. No, no big deal. Um, I'll, I'll see you Sunday. And Steve turned to me and he said, Mark the biggest thing you need to know about us, and he's talking about himself as an alcoholic, is that we will lie to you all the time. We will lie. And he was saying that because he was convinced that this guy who would say, oh yeah, yeah, no problem, I'll be there. And sure enough, we never saw him again. We have no idea if he, you know, had an overdose or went to prison and just never heard from him again. And I thought about that, and I thought about the fact that there was a harvest that came from the things that he was involved in, this guy that disappeared. And even my friend who walked with the Lord for a while and then again was was gone. Verse 8 again says, Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death. And with several of the guys that I worked with, like I said, I had no idea after a while whether they had died of an overdose or were in prison, never heard from them again. And Manasseh was harvesting exactly what he planted. He planted evil in every form. And now he's taken with a hook through his nose and chains on his ankles across the desert and made to serve as a slave. The challenge to us is to always remember that it doesn't stop there, because verse nine says, "So let us not get tired of doing good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up." So we seek in our own walk to challenge and encourage others. And, and, and I, I never preached on Manasseh before, and that's because it's such a dark story. But it doesn't stop there, and that's the good news. But this first part is something we have to understand that. You know, this is a man who had every chance to love and honor and serve God and chose instead to turn his back on God and go into evil full speed ahead. And so as we are thinking through these issues, we also need to remember, just like Manasseh was harvesting what he had sown, all of us harvest what we sow. So let's sow those things which are in keeping with the things that God has for us. So keep on going. We don't want to give up. We know that the harvest is coming. Let's keep on going and see if we can't finish up this chapter. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people. Verse 10 again. They paid no attention. Uh, Again, so Manasseh would not listen to Isaiah, would not listen to Micah, any other prophet that came along, he would not listen. Instead, he made it his goal to kill all of them if he possibly could and anybody else that might side with the prophet's. And he just slaughtered people whole, wholeheartedly. He shed so much blood that he filled Jerusalem with it. So because the Lord wouldn't listen, because Manasseh wouldn't listen, the Lord brought against him the army commanders of Assyria, and they took him prisoner. Uh, they put that hook through his nose, they bound him with brown shackles, and they dragged him across the desert to Babylon. We have no idea, and this is kind of important. Uh, I studied this, and I studied all of the resources I know we have. Even looked at some of the Jewish historians that, that were available to me, and <clears throat> we have no idea how old Manasseh was when Assyria came and took him captive. We know he's twelve when he's under the throne. He reigned with his dad ten years. He was twenty-two when his dad passed, and then you know he reigned a total of fifty-five years in there. How many years did it take for him to do all this kind of evil and take people that direction, destroy all the high places? We have no idea. When he got taken to Babylon and was a slave, how long was that? We don't know. Was it a year? Was it five years? Again, this stuff drives me crazy because I really want to know, but God didn't want me to, so... (laughs) But, you know, you ask those questions, how long was it? And this is the other side, too. There'll be some people who very, very boldly say, well, this happened, and they'll tell you it happened in what part of his life. And I'm thinking, there's no verse that says that. Where are you coming up with that information? Because you're making it up. So I just want to say, that's my frustration (laughs) in that there was no actual statement of how much time. But verse 12 tells us something really powerful. He's been there for a while. He's been a slave and it says, in his distress or pain, he sought the favor or mercy of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Now, you know, if it was me, I'd have said, yeah, sure. <laughs> You're staying in Babylon, son. That's not what God did. In his distress, he sought the favor of God. He humbled himself greatly before God. 13, when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and he listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem to his kingdom. I think this was his conversion point because look at what it says here. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is god then he knew the lord is god and there is only one all these other things that i've been doing all these other gods i've been chasing there is only one god so probably this wasn't just a single prayer i don't think that this all just he got this Oh, wow. And then suddenly he prayed and, and God said, good, we'll send you back. I think this was a period of time that went by where he was praying and, and asking God to, to, to help him and confessing the sins that he'd committed and the evil things that he had done. And God takes him back and restores him to his kingdom. So he's king again in, in Jerusalem. And while he's there, he rebuilds the wall of Jerusalem, he strengthens all the cities that are military cities, and he does all kinds of good things to fortify and make Jerusalem stronger so that it isn't susceptible to enemies. Verse 15, he got rid of the foreign gods, removed the image from the temple of the Lord, as well as all of the altars he had built on the temple hill and in Jerusalem. And he threw them all out of the city. and That's probably in the, in the Hinnom Valley. Where, and they were either burned or they were ground into powder. That's how they would destroy that. Cleansed out the temple and the city of all the idols that he had brought and set up. Verse 16, Then he restored the altar of the Lord, sacrificed fellowship offerings and thank offerings, and told Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. And he tells us verse 17 that they still continue to use the high places, but supposedly they were worshiping God at the high places, although God didn't want that. They were doing that at least instead of seeking after Baal. Verse 18-19 and tells us that there's a, other places <clears throat> where these things are kept. And then in, in verse 20 it says, Manasseh rested with his fathers and was buried in, in his palace, not with all the kings, but in his palace. And his son Ammon succeeded him. There's an implication here, and, and, and also a takeaway I want to just share. Uh, verse 13 When he prayed to him, the Lord moved by his entreaty, listened to his plea, brought him back to Jerusalem. Uh, and then Manasseh knew, then Manasseh knew the Lord is God. The net translation says it this way Manasseh realized that the Lord is the true God. That's powerful. He he finally gets it. His father told him all along. His father was teaching him those things, but it not, he didn't take any of it in. And it also made me think of the Old Testament. I mean, the first person that I remember hearing this, and it's elsewhere too, but Isaiah is the one who quoted God as saying, I am the Lord in Isaiah 45. There is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me. So that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know there's none besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. Some of my favorite verses in Isaiah. And Isaiah was saying basically there is nowhere else to go and there is nobody else to go to. God and only God. interesting when God was bringing the people out of Egypt, if you remember... The ten plagues. If you go back and study that, you find out that all of those plagues were directed at effects or some kind of a representation that they had of that thing. For instance, they had a god that had a frog head. Okay, so I can imagine God saying, you like frogs? Okay, here you go. And he sent just covered the land with frogs. Well, on one level, what he's saying is, you worship the, the frog god, I'm God in control of all the frogs. And he did that with all of the the different plagues that were there. And so he's he's going through that process, and he was showing them, you have all these gods that you worship, but there's only one. I'm the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. Another incident I remember was when the the Philistines, um, during Samuel's life, and they captured the Ark of the Covenant, if you remember that story. And and they took the Ark of the Covenant into their temple of the god Dagon, set the Ark of the Covenant next to it, essentially saying, we captured this other god, we'll have both these gods to serve us now. And uh, they come in the next morning, and the god Dagon is face down on the ground, big huge statue, just flat on the ground in front of the ark. And so they say, okay, we, we obviously need to shim this thing up. So they get it back up and they get it in place and they make sure it's solid. It's not going anywhere. Next day they come in. Dead God is on his face. His head's been chopped off in both his hands. They decided they didn't want the ark anymore. <clears throat> and they send it and eventually send it back to Israel. But I, again, what was God doing with all that? You know, they, they're worshiping this and worshiping that. And the Lord was saying, hey, I'm God. There's nobody but me. I'm the only one. And you have got Dagon here that you've been worshiping. Well, let me show you who's really God. And he showed them. Um, It's interesting that when the, the Lord was speaking to the people of Israel and giving them his law, he said, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. And he says, you shall have no other God before me. I'm it. I'm the only one. There is no other. And that was what he wanted them to do and to believe. And, you know, I was thinking about that myself this week and saying, how, how is it that I show that I believe that there's one God and only one God? How do, how do I show that I know that he's God and there is no other? How do, how's that seen in, in my life? What kinds of priorities do I live by that would show, you know what? there 's God, and God is central, and He is what I focus on and so I thought about that and thought about the fact that uh, the fact that I believe there is no other God but my God should impact how I use my time how when I use my time, how am I showing that there is one God and only one god how How am I using my resources and and in what ways am I showing that I believe there's one God and, and only one God and he's there is no other How about when I interact with others? In my interactions, am I, in the way that I live, in the way that I talk, the way that I have fun, whatever it is, am I also in all of that saying there's one God and there is no other? And that's who I'm living for. That's who I want to be the one that's in control in my life. So as we think those things through, may we be able to say, my God is... God, and there is no other apart from Him. There is no God. What do we take away from this? Verse 12 said, In his pain, Manasseh asked the Lord his God for mercy and truly humbled himself before the God of his ancestors. When he finally came face to face with the fact that Baal and all these other gods weren't going to do anything for him, When he finally came face to face, I think, with with maybe the crushing reality of what he had been doing. Filling Jerusalem with blood and all of those evil things that he'd done. And now he's coming to grips with the fact that the God that he'd been kind of, you know, trying to do all these things in that God's face is saying, Hey, you know what? You've got nothing that you can do to me. So in his pain, And in his distress, he cries out to God. And that's the wonder of mercy and grace, isn't it? That's the wonder. If anyone deserved the judgment of God and to be sent straight to hell, I'm sorry to put it this way, but it's Manasseh. He was evil. And yet God sent him through some incredibly harsh, hard things. And he finally got a clue. He finally understood. And he cried out to God for mercy. Maybe he finally understood that God was saying, I am the Lord. There's nobody else. There's nobody apart from me. One day Jesus taught a parable, and it tells us in the context that he taught this parable to the people who were confident in their own religiosity, their own, you know, pride about uh, what they did spiritually. And this was the parable. A tax collector, the lowest of the low, and a Pharisee, the highest of the high, both went to the temple to pray. The Pharisee prayed this, and it says he prayed this about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. That was his prayer to God. The tax collector wouldn't even look up in heaven. stood by himself. And he was beating his chest. And he said... God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Luke eighteen fourteen. Jesus says this in response. I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. That's how you get saved. Be merciful, God. I put my trust and faith in you because there's nobody else. And somehow, Manasseh got to that point where he was able to say, I know there's one God and only one God. The interesting thing is, not one of us is better than the tax collector. None of us. Oh, we may think we're pretty well cleaned up and look good on the outside, but every single one of us are saved by the mercy and grace of God. We sang this uh, when we celebrated communion this last week. I love this old song. On the Mount of Crucifixion, Fountains opened deep and wide through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love, like mighty rivers, poured incessant from above. And heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world love. I love the fact that in Hebrews 4 we are told because we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens Jesus Christ our Lord the Son of God we can come to him whenever and receive mercy and grace to help in our time of need. Let's pray. Lord God, come to the end of something like this and we we don't understand all of the reasons why you do what you do, but we do understand that you forgive sinners. And that when we cry out for your grace and your mercy, it is there. And we're saved by your grace and we continue to grow and keep going through your mercy and grace at work in our hearts. And so we thank you, we praise you, and we worship you, and we acknowledge that you are God and there is no other. That's in your name that we pray. Amen.